and welcome to the Unknown Warrior podcast with Jason and Pete. Today we're delighted to be joined by Laura Whitman. She's the author of a book called The Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, Modern Morning and the Reinvention of the Mystical Body, which is available from University of Toronto Press. She's uh, an academic and researcher who's written a lot about the uh, the Unknown Warrior and remembrance and commemoration in, in general. So we thought it'd be brilliant for you to come onto the podcast so we can kind of move away maybe from just looking specifically at the British Unknown Warrior and look at some more international unknown soldiers that were created uh, after the First World War. So thank you very much for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. It's great to be here. and Thank you. So how did the huge losses experienced by France in particular impact the ideas for commemoration and remembrance within that country? Yes, that's a great question. I think one of the big differences would be that in France, there was this problem of massive numbers of dead soldiers that needed to be buried, that were in French soil, that were near civilians, that had to be taken care of. And they were often at the front line, uh, but but nonetheless, I mean, you can see the problem. And this was the first war in which governments had promised to give each individual soldier a proper burial, which was new. In the past, people, governments would, you know, use mass graves and only important people, you know, generals, leaders would get their own special graves. So there was this big issue of what to do with all these bodies that were quite visible and very much in the way. And I think that one of the origins of the unknown soldier idea was the impromptu grave that comrades would create, right? They would find a dead body. They they would not necessarily even know who that person was. And they would bury that body and put a very, you know, a makeshift cross made of whatever they could find. Sometimes it would be dog tags hanging on it. So we have photographs of these graves from 1916 already. The creation of the, the the idea for taking one body from the battlefield, one unknown soldier, and, and bringing them to a central place where people could use that body as a, as a symbol for any of their lost loved ones. It was created in France. The idea, the concept of this was created in France around the same time as David Railton was coming up with that idea in Britain, wasn't it? It was quite, it was working in parallel, really. Yes, and in Italy as well, actually. All three nations. I, it was one of the things I was trying to figure out in my book was, can we find a first proposal, a first idea um, all three nations, I believe, at various times claimed that they came up with the idea first, uh, but I couldn't find any evidence really for in favor of any one of the three. And I concluded that they were working in parallel, as you said, and also that, that in fact, the people who proposed it officially, so Railton, or in the case of France, a man named Francois, Francis Simon, uh, Giulio Douai in Italy, they themselves didn't want to take credit for inventing the idea. They kind of pointed to soldiers and to these impromptu memorials that were already happening. And I think they weren't being falsely modest. I think they were genuinely observing a phenomenon that was happening on the battlefield in no man's land and maybe crystallizing it, giving it form. And in particular, I think bringing the government's attention to how powerful this form of burial could be if it became sponsored by the government, right? So I think that's what we can credit them with. As Jason said, we kind of delved into how the UK Unknown Warrior came about. So it's really interesting to see, like, as, you say, as you say, the kind of parallels between that. Yeah, so give us a give us a kind of overview. How did those processes differ and how did they remain the same? 
So the Italian one, I think, is the the more the stranger story in the sense that there was this quite famous writer, Gabriele D'Annunzio, who was also an aviator in World War One. He he was a big champion of Italy's intervention in the war in 1915 uh, and became a very vocal sort of encourager and animator of the Italian troops. And part of how he fulfilled this role was by creating new types of commemoration for the dead and emphasizing this sense of extreme camaraderie between the soldiers who were still living and still fighting and their dead comrades. And he took a a friend of his who died in 1917, who was called Giovanni Randaccio, a, a specific foot soldier who died, and created this huge commemoration for him that became, because Denuncio was famous, you know, well before World War One, the newspapers would follow his adventures. And so this commemoration that he invented for Giovanni Randaccio was published in a lot of tabloid newspapers. And because he was Denuncio, he also was able to write a special oration or speech in honor of Randaccio that uh, was published as a small book. And the book itself was translated into French and Italian and distributed to soldiers all over Italy, France, and the UK. In this book, he describes Randaccio as the prototype for every dead soldier and specifically says that commemorating his death is a way to commemorate the deaths of all the unknown soldiers who have not received a proper ceremony yet. So even though Randaccio was a specific person and not anonymous, like the unknown soldier, the unknown warrior, there's this idea of one specific body standing in for all the others that have not been recovered, right? And the Italian proponent of the unknown soldier memorial, the, the sort of government proponent, uh, was also an aviator, Giulio Due, who was an admirer of D'Annunzio and who uses the same language. So you can you can literally find some of the exact same phrases that he uses to describe how the honors given to this one body will be able to assuage all of the mourning. There's all this language of the mourning mothers and the mourning parents and the mourning children who have no body to connect to and how this body will will replace those, right? So there's this way in which D'Annunzio kind of, I think as an artist really sort of feeds the imagination of the unknown soldier. In France, the the official proponent was Francis Simon. And I think his proposal actually came in a little bit before Douai's proposal. And the the language is also very similar. I mean, obviously in French this time, it's not the the connection is not as exactly direct. Uh, But in both cases, what you have is military men suggesting to their governments this would be an extraordinary way to honor the foot soldier. That's the other theme that is really important. Uh, the idea of the il fante in Italian or le poilu in, in France. The, the importance of giving, there's this contrast that is made in the text, this huge state honors for someone who is extremely small and modest, right? And that's the, the contrast that they want to emphasize. So I think that's kind of the basic, you know, how it starts. And the other thing that I found remarkable was that both the French government and the Italian government, when you look at the government documents, there are some interesting discussions between the military and parliament in that parliament and politicians were a little bit worried about 
emphasizing even more just how many people had died, how, how many people had died losing their identity without burial, you know, they, they sort of questioned, you know, is this a good thing to commemorate that so many people didn't get a proper grave? And the military responded really talking about how popular this idea was with soldiers. So even before the government adopted it in France or Italy, it was already popular with military men. And the government, the Italian government in particular, I, I found they felt very pressured into creating this memorial, whether they liked it or not, basically. It was sort of, okay, we have to do it. Let's try to find a way to make it more acceptable to us, you know, more uniting from our perspective. It's fascinating really to think that we we take a lot of our traditions around remembrance and, and commemorate soldiers lost in conflict for granted really in a way i think that you know you just assume it's always been there and that's always been the case and as you say really it's the first world war when when these these grand statements of remembrance and and you know and commemoration having monuments and stuff it's the first time that kind of comes about doesn't it is there anything in in antiquity or in history that they're kind of trying to draw upon to kind of give them ideas as to, as to how we can commemorate these these unknown soldiers one reference is clearly ossuaries that were used in the ancient world and in particular in the Peloponnesian War. And they they would often collect all the, you know, all the remains that they would find on the battlefield and create an ossuary, so a, a tomb for all the remains together, and then list names, but mostly only of famous fighters whose names would be known, right? So it was not an exhaustive list. Um, and you see some of this with World War One, and people have written about how there's this sort of peculiar separation where in small towns all over France and Italy, you have these lists of names, the dead from that town, right? Sometimes very long lists for very small towns. And then the body for all of them is somehow in Paris or in Rome. And this was kind of the, the, the innovation, right? It was a way to take those names that are local and somehow connect them to the national, the centralized, right? So making it at once local and central. The other historical background that's interesting is the American Civil War, which argue, people have argued is, is, is actually the first time where uh, there was a kind of democratization of soldiers, uh, in part because it was a civil war. And there was a famous soldier. It's a little bit like Giovanni Randaccio. His name was Amos Humiston. And um, he also was buried with a fair amount of ceremony and was referred to as the unknown soldier who would sort of stand in for, again, all the others who were missing. So it was that idea already existed in the Civil War. Um, they didn't actually create an unknown soldier memorial. They had ossuaries, so with many remains mixed together. But the concept was already sort of beginning to be talked about. And we've we've covered a lot within our research into the story of the the British unknown warrior about kind of the selection process and the fact that for the British it was all about secrecy. It was about secrecy and keeping the identity secret. So there was no way anybody could find out who they were or from what battlefield that they came from or whatever so that that completely unknown unique nature uh, would stay sacred and would would stay that way so that it, its power would never be lost to connect with with people and obviously that complete secrecy has led to 
different stories coming out and and different people claim to be involved and, and and sort of some quite left field different things that we've kind of looked into what was the selection process like in in france and italy did they follow the same kind of path of, of secrecy or did they look at it from a different angle so they they both also had this idea that secrecy would be important and in France, they had eight battlefields where they, they did uh, exhumations. In Italy, there were 11. But in both cases, the exhumations were done by the military and the public was very deliberately kept away from them. And then in both cases, there was a ceremony. And I believe it was the same thing in the UK. There was a ceremony where one among the bodies that that came from these battlefields was chosen to be the unknown soldier in various ways that were intended to emphasize randomness, right? That there would be no no choosing of a particular battlefield or a particular body. So in the French case, they originally had a, a blind veteran in mind. So the blindness being, you know, added guarantee that no no choice would be made. Um, and then at the last minute, they, they had to re- replace him with someone who actually did have eyesight. But the thrust of it is there, right? The idea of anonymity. And the, the ceremony itself was actually also not a very major ceremony. I mean, it was visible to the public, but it was very small. It was done at Verdun. And then the chosen body was transported to Paris and to the Pantheon and then the Arc de Triomphe. So the move to Paris was really when this casket and this body became public. And in Italy, there's another twist to the story. So, well, there's a few other interesting twists. The person who chose one among the 11 caskets was actually uh, a widow who had also lost her son, uh, which is an interesting choice because in Italy, all of these ceremonies had a much more Catholic component, and she was clearly intended to be a kind of Virgin Mary figure, hence the choice of a woman as opposed to a soldier, which we see in other cases. And she performed, I think, even beyond expectations by fainting on top of one of the caskets and eventually recovering. And, you know, it was very, very dramatic. It was a show. And they they did it. It was done not at a military spot as it was in France, at Verdun. In Italy, they did it in a cathedral at Aquileia. So again, this, you know, this it was kind of a religious drama with a much bigger audience. And then the transportation of the soldier from Aquileia to Rome was also a public transportation. The casket was put on a train and it proceeded very slowly from northern Italy, where the battlefields were, to Rome, which is important because Italy had recently been unified as a nation and some would say not very solidly unified. And this transportation across a big part of the country was seen as a way to unite Italians, right? That people all along the way from different parts of Italy would come and kneel and honor the animal soldier's body as it came by. One last thing I'll mention that's very interesting is governments did want to keep exhumations out of the public eye. I don't know if you've talked about that already, but you know it was it was kind of a grisly affair of digging up body parts and. One of the things that I learned was that they were very concerned, of course, about trying to find bodies that would be identifiable as specifically French or specifically Italian. So there needed to be enough, you know, remains of uniform or something else. But, you know, if you had dog tags and the person was no longer anonymous, so that's no good. So there was that problem. And then they were also trying, although there's, you know, conflicting accounts here, 
they were trying to find a body that would be whole, you know, that would at least have all the required limbs and parts, even if scattered, right? And some of the people who worked on it, you know, expressed doubts about that, you know, how certain are we that the unknown soldier is all the body parts of one person? You know, how certain are we that he's truly French? We don't know exactly. In Italy, interestingly, the military, the, the man uh, in charge of the exhumations published a book of photographs of what he was digging up. The book was created, subsidized by a veteran association and published almost, I think, exclusively for the people who participated in the exhumations. This was not a thing you could go to a store and buy. It was the kind of book that people paid for by subscription. But it's an incredible historical document. I've, I've talked to quite a few historians who who have told me that they've never seen anything similar in the French case or British or anywhere else, really, that people would document and publish the photographs of something like that. So we spoke to Peter Francis from the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. He gave us an excellent kind of pricey of, yeah, just the, the trauma of being involved in that exhumation process of what those people had to recognise and see and dig up. And as you say, kind of in that, in the selection process of, you know, of the unknown soldier and unknown warrior and, you know, just in a wider, uh, you know, exhumation case as well. And then so uh, you mentioned then about the kind of how these symbols were kind of, how the unknown soldiers were kind of meant to help bring these kind of countries together you know, Italy in its state of flux as it was uh, even more so. Like, so how did the kind of, what was the kind of public reaction and kind of what what were the, what were the governments kind of hoping to kind of get from the combination of the kind of creation of the unknown soldiers? Um, I think that the governments and the common people had slightly different agendas as can happen. You know, you can think of the trajectory as expressing an agenda. In in France, the unknown soldier was brought to the Pantheon, where in a deliberately secular context, the if you want, the intellectual and political ancestors of, of the French Republic are housed, are buried, right? Before he was actually finally buried under the Arc de Triomphe in Paris, he was included in this pantheon and I think put on the side of the secular republic very, very specifically, right? And I think for some French people that was great and, and for others not as great. And yet the memorial itself, the idea, he remained very popular as a character. And that's where one of the interesting things that I found when I did research on this uh, is that that popularity was manifested in a lot of works of fiction and poetry that give voice to this anonymous man and imagine him to have a personality and a life and a family and and to want something for the future of France in this case. You know, so these works of fiction, imaginary, often imaginary autobiographies, you know, appropriate this character to have him speak what people feel needs to happen after the war. And so in France, there was a definite vein of irony. You won't be surprised to learn about, you know, we don't truly believe that all this fighting was worth it. But now, you know, let's move on in all these other ways. In the Italian case, um, so let me step back again to the trajectory. It's a more religious trajectory that goes through not only the Cathedral of Aquileia, where he was chosen, but then when he arrived in Rome before going to uh, the Vittoriano, he also went to the Church of Santa Maria degli Angeli, where he received Catholic absolution, which caused a certain amount of complications, too, because how can you absolve someone who doesn't have an identity? 
but they they squared that out somehow. And then he was buried in the Vittoriano, which is the monument at the center of Rome that was built to honor King Victor Emmanuel II, the king who who presided over the unification of Italy. So clearly it was there was unification of church and state that was being expressed here by the government as well as as the church noted rather wryly, you know, the most important place is the the place of the king and the state. The the church is important, but but the final resting place is the state. So there was a little debate and squabbling about that. But as was the case in France, it's in works of fiction and in newspapers that you would see people imagine the unknown soldiers speaking and voicing, let's say, less state-sanctioned reasons why he should be listened to. And in Italy, this was particularly, well, one thing that was particularly salient was a lot of people felt that the Italian government had made a lot of promises regarding redistribution of land, reparations for damages done during the war. So basically all kinds of economic support that had been promised to soldiers and or the families of dead soldiers that didn't really materialize after the war. And the unknown soldier often became the, the person to voice that complaint, right? To sort of say, you know, why is my family still starving and have no land to cultivate when I fought and I did this and that and the other? Um, so, so that was a, you know, a big part of his popularity was being able to voice all of these complaints. I also would say that the unknown soldier as a literary character and a, and a character in the popular press was often associated with the ones that were known as those who were not chosen. So not the one who ended up in the Arc de Triomphe or in the Vittoriano, but the ones who were sort of left behind, who somehow became because they didn't receive the major state honor, they actually, the identification with the average person was even greater and they, they were considered to be more modest and not as appropriated by the government. And so people would often imagine them standing in for, you know, all kinds of views about what should happen after the war. I mean, often pacifist views, views critical of the war itself. In France, there's an interesting small but interesting pacifist feminist group that tries to adopt the unknown soldier as their son. You know, so you can see how he, he kind of becomes this character who, you know, gets bigger and different from the monument itself. It's fascinating to think that, you know, the, the, the state's trying to create this monument, but then, you know, giving it back to the people, but then the people take him on board themselves and use him to articulate their own thoughts and issues and, and feelings and stuff, which perhaps the government didn't realize when they created him which is which is a, f a phenomenal thing there how, it, how it's entering that public consciousness and and uh you know entering the the national story so can we say that it that it did play a role in helping heal some of those deep wounds felt by families across those countries uh, you know italy suffered horrendous loss but especially in in france where you know there, there was there was huge losses there especially at battles like Verdun. did it did it help to heal heal the nation there i think it did i think one really I, I, genuinely innovative and and powerful thing about the unknown soldier the tombs of the unknown soldiers all over the world i think is that there is a real body there so it's not an empty tomb it's not an ossuary uh there there and and so it makes real i think for the mourner 
it helps you feel like you've you've touched the body or you've seen the body you've been close to the dead body of your, of your loved one right and there's a fair amount i think of psychological research suggesting that this this really matters it helps with closure that that people who never have this connection to the dead body for example people who lose um partners out at sea and there's never a body to mourn there's a even greater difficulty in mourning that can happen. Um, and so I think the memorial really helped with that. And there is, I think, a fair amount of testimony showing, I think, especially early on. So I would say, you know, before World War II, that people really, whatever the state said, they still identified in this kind of visceral way with this embodied suffering. And it helped them in some way in their process of mourning. I think after World War II, it kind of changes. Things get very politicized. I mean, in Italy, they get politicized under fascism already. So I think the popular use of the of the memorial probably got reduced and, mo- and moved to other places, right? But for a while, I think it was very powerful and very helpful. And obviously, like you say, with the context of the Second World War and bringing it up to the present day, what role does the Unknown Soldier play in national commemoration in France and Italy today? So the Unknown Soldiers, um, both of them still play, you know, a big role in Veterans Day, right? The the sort of commemoration, November 11th, the remembrance of all wars. I think that there's a bit of a struggle now that Europe in general, I think, has become, you know, more, much more overtly pacifist. I mean, not completely, not, not 100%, but, you know, much more than it used to be. The rhetoric has shifted to... You know, we commemorate, we honor those who who fought valiantly, but it's a, it's less belligerent, right? It has grown a lot less belligerent over time. Uh, but there's, I think, still this idea that that we honor those who who defended our values. I suppose it it becomes a bit about values rather than about territory, is what I would observe. That said, I think there's a big difference between France and Italy because Italy has had Berlusconi. Who, who styled himself in some ways after Mussolini and was happy to sort of reawaken some of the more bellicist, more violent-sounding kinds of commemorations. Mussolini used the, uh, the Unknown Soldier Memorial to talk about how the Unknown Soldier would always be ready to fight further for the next war for Italy. And, and Berlusconi basically said the same and used, you know, had himself photographed in front of the same, you know, same pose. I mean, you can kind of see it happening. And I think as a result, Italians who were protesting Berlusconi and were protesting the U.S. war in Iraq in 2003 also protested in front of the Italian uh, Tomb of the Unknown Soldier because they were sort of responding to this appropriation by Berlusconi. And that all of that didn't really happen in France, I think in part because no Berlusconi and, you know, in part, I think it's also a visual thing. The The tomb of the unknown soldier in Paris is completely flat on the ground, and it is completely overshadowed by the Arc de Triomphe, this ancient triumphal arch. Whereas in Italy, the tomb is raised up and very visible and becomes this kind of very emblematic representation of whatever it is you're trying to, you know, it's something to fight over that is right there and on camera, which you know, didn't matter quite as much in 1920, but in 2003, it mattered a lot for your photo op, for your, you know, what you were doing. 
And it's fascinating there that it remains relevant, you know, right up until 2003 and future conflicts. And, you know, its symbolism and relevance is, is still there throughout all of that, even though it was, you know, laid to rest back in 1920. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you if you have me- if you mentioned at some point in your podcast that um, Canada got an unknown soldier. I'm trying to remember. I think it was in 2004. So they decided they wanted one as well and, and sort of, uh, you know, arranged to, to have a body found and to have a monument created. So it's interesting. It does remain very popular. Yes. I mean, we, 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 speak, we spoke to, again, Peter Francis again uh, from the Commonwealth War Graves Commission about the, the creation of those, of the Australian, um, Canadian and, and, and New Zealand uh, unknown soldiers, as it were, because the... You know, and that was what was quite nice about bringing it up to date because they had a selection process again, where they had to choose one of the bodies, and it and it you know it, it sort of went back to what we would learn about about the selection process back in 1920. You know, to make sure that it was a truly unknown body and that it couldn't be identified, so that it could contain this mythical unknown status. So yeah, definitely bringing it right up to date, uh, which shows that it is still relevant today, which shows its importance. That was an absolutely fascinating conversation there Laura and it's definitely given our listeners some more context as to what was going on in Europe as well with the the creation of the unknown soldier there so I'd recommend anybody have a look at your book which obviously you explore this in in further detail than we've got time unfortunately on the podcast but um, thank you very much for joining us today and yeah thanks very much for exploring this subject thank you very much